History Helmet. Hello and welcome to the History Helmet podcast. The podcast that likes to look history right in the eye and ask, what are you looking at? This week, Thermopylae. Subject of the Zack Snyder movie 300 and the novel The Hot Gates by Stephen Pressfield. The year is 480 BCE. The place is Kalidromo in central Greece, and the battle is about to take place, which will echo down the millennia, inspiring and giving hope to underdogs in every corner of the globe. It's the massive fight at Thermopylae. So if you don't know this battle or have never heard of it, I strongly recommend you read the Stephen Pressfield book, The Hot Gates, or watch the Zack Snyder movie, 300. It's not exactly how it went down, but it'll give you an idea. Um, Numbers. First, let's kick off with some numbers uh, connected with the battle. The Battle of Thermopylae itself was fought over the course of three days. And those three days took place two and a half thousand years ago. Thermopylae was a narrow pass between the sea and the mountains in an area about 200 kilometers or 120 miles north of the Greek capital Athens. The pass is much wider now due to the sea having receded over the years, but at the time it was much, much more narrow. The battle took place between two sides, as most battles do, the invading Persians on one, the defending Greeks on the other. Of course, as this tale has been told again and again over the years, the number of soldiers involved has grown with regards to the Persians and shrunk with regards to the Greeks. At the top end of the scale, some would have you believe that two million Persians were bearing down on 300 Spartans. But this is pure exaggeration. It sounds good. It's a good title for a movie. 300. Wow, 300 guys. It wasn't. Ancient populations were not so huge, and an army of two million would have been absolutely impossible to maintain with regards to supply lines and organisation. Modern scholars put the figures involved in the battle at about 100 to 150,000 for the Persians and at about 7,000 for the Greeks. Contrary to the portrayal of Thermopylae in the movies, yes, 300, the Zack Snyder movie, it wasn't just the Spartans standing between the Persians and the rest of Greece. The Greek force was made up of numerous groups from all over the region. The Spartan contingent, though, did actually number 300. So how do we know about this battle? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, the main source of the information we have about Thermopylae comes from a couple of Greeks. The father of history himself, Herodotus, and the poet, Simonides. More recently, in the 19th and 20th centuries, English historian George B. Grundy was the first historian in the modern era to carry out an in-depth investigation upon the battlefield itself. Okay, before we go any further, a note on Sparta. The word Spartan 
has evolved to become a shorthand for self-denial, austerity, simplicity, hardship. Were a Spartan baby deemed too weedy, it would be abandoned at birth. For those who were allowed to live, things then got even tougher. Indoctrinated from a very young age, Spartan males were taken from their family home and raised in barracks with all other males who were of age. Underfed, deprived of comforts and pushed to their limits, the boys quickly developed skills of cunning and survival. Often contradictory in its instruction, the ethos included idiosyncrasies as encouragement to be opportunistic, but harsh punishment if caught stealing. Bullying and beatings were endemic, but regarded as methods by which the weak would be separated from the strong. The strong was all the state of Sparta was interested in. Okay, a little bit of background to the battle. Why did it happen? Well, the Battle of Thermopylae was one of a series of battles which made up the Greco-Persian Wars, also called the Persian Wars, fought between 492 and 449 BC, or BCE if you prefer. Right bang in the middle of a period known as Classical Greece. As the name suggests, the Greco-Persian Wars were fought between Greece and Persia. Where the heck is Persia, you may be asking. Well, Persia is an old name for the area we now know as Iran. But despite having the same name in our modern world, Greece was not the unified country we know today. This is ancient Greece we're talking about. Forget your frappes, your kebabs, your two weeks all-inclusive in Corfu. Greece at this time was a fragile alliance of city-states, the big hitters being Athens, Sparta, Corinth, Thebes, Syracuse and Rhodes. Each city-state was self-governing and held different views on the best way to do this. Sparta, for example, was basically a dictatorship ruled by two kings where a strong army was top priority. Athens, on the other hand, was more artsy-fartsy, valuing education and the right of each man, not woman, mind you, to vote. The Greek city-states came about largely, in part, because of the physical terrain of Greece. Natural land dividers like rocky mountains and remote islands meant that population pockets developed somewhat isolated from each other. Upper-class Greeks, too, pushed the independence of their own city-states for fear of being controlled by some ambitious, ancient generalissimo. Despite being independent from each other, the city-states, Greece, as a whole, in the 5th century BC, enjoyed rather a distrustful cohabitation with the all-powerful Persian Empire, existing in a kind of constant Cold War state. Then, in 547 BC, things heated up when Cyrus the Great invaded and conquered Greek Ionia, now part of Turkey. Over the next six decades, the Persians were to use salami tactics 
that's taking slice by slice, folks, in an attempt to take control of Greek territories and islands with some mixed success. The Greeks rebelled against their imposed new rulers, but generally were under the thumb. This all changed in 490 BC, when King Darius of Persia, who had led the first invasion of Greece two years earlier in 492 BC, got his ass handed to him at the Battle of Marathon. This historic scrap sent the Persians packing and gave us a name for a long, long, long running race. When the battle had been won, a Greek soldier ran the 26 miles from the battlefield to Athens with news of the victory. Hence, Marathon. The 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill said of the Battle of Marathon that it was more significant in English history than the Battle of Hastings, which actually took place in England. He was probably talking about how Marathon can be seen as a fight between the foundling democracy of Greece and the oppressive tyranny of Persia. Had the Greeks lost at Marathon, then Western civilization as we know it may look hugely different. That's if it even existed at all. Darius, who, in spite of his invasion of Greece, is known for his administrative genius and grand building projects, died in 486 BC and was succeeded by his son, Xerxes. If you watch the movie 300, that's the massive bloke with all the gold on his face. Now, Xerxes, he's the number one big fella. And in an effort to honour his late father and avenge the embarrassments suffered at the Battle of Marathon, leads the Persian Empire on another invasion of Greece with a huge army in 480 BC. This time, it's personal. So what happened? Xerxes turns up with a massive force, ten years in the making. He has just quashed an Egyptian rebellion and now has his sights set on Greece. Herodotus said that Xerxes' army was so vast that when they arrived at the Echidorus, Echidorus River, his soldiers drank it dry. Seeing which way their bread was buttered, many Greek city-states decided perhaps it was better just to roll over and capitulate to the Persians and their symbolic demand for a tribute of earth and water. Not so for the Spartans and the Athenians, though. Athens had a pretty sweet naval force, having had the foresight to start building swift ships in the aftermath of the Battle of Marathon. However, they lacked the manpower to fight on land and sea, so the need for a formal alliance became urgent as news of the Persians' army advancement reached Greece through reports from spies. On some occasions, Xerxes even allowed the Greek spies to wander through the army camp to get a sense of the scale of the invading force, so as they could report back to Greece and spread panic amongst its leaders. In the spring of 480 BC, the Persian army invaded northern Greece and quickly took control of the sea. After it was made clear that it would be folly to try to win the north back from the Persians, the Greek alliance decided that further south at Thermopylae would be the place to make a stand. King Leonidas of Sparta led the alliance 
and headed for the hot gates with his personal guard of 300 Spartans and about 7,000 other soldiers from various cities around Greece. Interestingly, the Spartan force was made up entirely of men who had already sired sons. As before setting off, Leonidas had consulted the oracle at Delphi, eager to know of their chances in the battle. Depressingly, though, the oracle told him that either Greece would fall or Leonidas would die. From that moment on, he was under no illusions that this was anything other than a suicide mission for him and his troops. But like the samurai of feudal Japan 2,000 years later, death on the battlefield was as glorious an end as Spartan could wish for. Not a thing to be feared, but something to be pursued and greeted with a smile. It was what their whole lives had been about, self-sacrifice for the greater good of the Spartan war machine. As the Persians approached from the north, Xerxes sent ahead spies to report back on the Greek positions. The spies were amazed to see the Spartans doing calisthenics and combing their hair and each other's hair. At first, this was mistaken for whimsy by the Persians, but upon hearing the reports, Xerxes could not believe that this was really a force worth fighting. He sent emissaries with a proposal of Spartan surrender, but received no answer. The Spartans didn't even bother replying. After five days, the Persians launched their attack. Now, as we know, the Greeks were vastly outnumbered by the Persians by 20 or even 30 to 1, but they had not chosen the narrow pass at Thermopylae as the battleground randomly. The hot gates formed a natural bottleneck between the sea and the mountains, and so the seemingly endless expanse of the Persian army bearing down on the Greeks was funneled down to a far more manageable force. Still, the fighting was fierce, as you can imagine. Spears, swords, axes, flying here, there and everywhere. The Persians were robbed of their greatest advantage, their number, but also their favourite tactic of blasting the enemy with wave after wave of arrows before the troops moved in to obliterate what remained of the opposition. Regardless, on day one of the battle, the Persian archers shot countless volleys of arrows, but without success. The Greek wooden shields with bronze helmets proved excellent protection. The Greek defences stood firm and frustrated Xerxes' idea of an easy win despite sending forth attackers in waves about 10,000 strong. The Greek units were arranged by the city from which they came and were on a rotation so as to allow the men to take a rest from battle. The ground in this tight space, the narrowest part of the pass, was soon slippery with blood and littered with the corpses and body parts of numerous Persians as they were cut down and left to die where they fell. Without the support of archers, the Persians were forced to try matching the defenders at their preferred way of fighting, hacking and slashing with swords at close quarters. But their own swords and shields were woefully inferior to those of the Greeks and especially the Spartans. The Spartan phalanx, 
which was basically a close-knit wall formed by overlapping shields with spears sticking out from the sides, was absolutely invaluable at repelling the invaders. And morale amongst the Persians must have sunk pretty low as they stepped and stumbled over the still warm bodies of their comrades to attack the impenetrable front line. Those at the front of the Persian attack were also in danger of being crushed by their brothers-in-arms behind them. It must have been like a crowd surge at some dystopian metal festival with one hell of a mosh pit. Having observed his first wave of attackers fail miserably, Xerxes sent forward his elite troops, the Immortals. These guys were the best Persia had to offer. But don't let the name fool you. They were not immortal in the true sense. Their name derived from the fact that their number was kept at a constant 10,000. During battle, if one man was slain, another man would join the horde and take his place. If a boulder suddenly fell on 20 soldiers, crushing them to death, 20 more would quickly take their place, and so on. It must have been like the war equivalent of eating my wife's cooking. You do your best to get through it, but it's hard going and it feels like it will never end. Despite their seemingly infinite numbers, the immortals met the same fate as those who went before them. You see, the Spartans were not only hard as nails, they were sneaky buggers, and must have taken a leaf out of Sun Tzu's book, The Art of War, written, funnily enough, around the same time as Thermopylae in the 5th century BC. The Spartans would feign retreat get the Persians thinking that they had the upper hand, then suddenly turn around and launch a counter-attack, catching the Persians off guard as they chased them. On the second day of the battle, Xerxes, feeling certain that the Greeks would be too fatigued and wounded to put up much more of a resistance, ordered division after division to attack them. And, to his utter bewilderment, what he observed was like a replay of day one with little to show for the high number of dead and maimed, sacrificed in an attempt to break through the Greek lines. Seeing it was a stalemate, Xerxes halted the attack and ordered his forces to fall back to their camp. In the face of such defiance on the part of the Greeks, he was unsure how to proceed, or even whether to proceed at all. It was now that fate stepped in. Fate in the form of a Greek traitor, motivated by greed and dreams of riches. This backstabber of the highest order, named Ephialtes, a name which has since become a byword for treachery in Greece and is still stigmatised to this day, claimed to know a mountain trail which would lead the way around the Spartan defences and allow Xerxes and his immortals to outflank their foes and encircle them. All he asked, as a reward from Xerxes, was untold wealth. Seeing this as his chance, Xerxes sent a force reported to be some 20,000 strong with Ephialtes to make their way along this mountain path and behind the Spartan lines. Their orders were to attack at dawn the next day. Now, the path above Thermopylae was being guarded by only a small force of Phocians, who were no match for the 20,000 elite troops sent by Xerxes. 
the Phocians retreated to a safe distance, expecting the Persians to attack them. But the Persians were eager to get to the main Greek army further down the mountain, and so passed by the Phocians with only a token gesture barrage of arrows shot in their direction. The Phocians sent a swift messenger to Leonidas with news of this separate Persian force attacking them from the rear. Upon hearing the news, Leonidas called a war council to discuss the Greek options. Some favoured withdrawal, but not Leonidas. His Spartan army was now surrounded, and in what some say was accordance with the laws of Sparta, Leonidas decided that the Spartans would not retreat, but stay and fight on, even though he knew this was the end for him and his 300 men. Leonidas told all other members of the Greek alliance that they were free to do whatever they wanted, and many decided to retreat rather than face certain annihilation. Honourable mentions here for the Thespians and the Thebans, who refused to leave and remained with Leonidas and his Spartan army at Thermopylae as the Persian noose grew tighter. Why did Leonidas decide to stay? Well, he may have been fulfilling the oracle's prediction that either Leonidas would die or Greece would fall, and in his mind, his own death would mean the salvation of Greece. More likely, though, is the theory that the Spartans fought on to slow the advancing Persian army and give the Greek contingents of the alliance, who had decided to retreat, time to get away. Whichever way you look at it, this was a monumentally noble sacrifice. So the 300 Spartans remained behind with about 700 Thespians and 400 Thebans, opting to leave the narrow confines of the Hot Gates Pass now to meet the Persians head-on on the battlefield. Xerxes timed his final attack to coincide with the 20,000 attacking from the rear. The Greeks fought at first with spears, then, when all the spears were shattered, with swords, and finally, literally, tooth and nail. Leonidas was killed by arrows from Persian archers, but two of Xerxes' brothers were slain also. Seeing that the end was near, the Greeks withdrew to a hill upon which they made their last stand. Losing their nerve at the last moment, the Thebans surrendered, but not before a fair few of them were slaughtered just for good measure. The Persian archers moved in, encircled the Greek hill, and launched a rain of arrows down upon them. Not one man survived. The battle was done. The Greeks lost somewhere in the region of 2,000 men. The Persians around ten times as many. The Persian infantry recovered Leonidas' body from the mass of dead Spartans and took it to Xerxes. In a not uncommon fit of rage, Xerxes ordered that the corpse be decapitated and crucified, a symbol of his frustration and contempt for Spartan will and defiance. So, why is it important? What's so special about the Battle of Thermopylae? 
Well, yeah. Thermopylae was a defeat for the Spartan alliance, the Greek alliance, and afterwards the Persians were at liberty to sack and pillage the rest of Greece. Athens, though it had been evacuated well in advance, burned to the ground. However, the repercussions of the battle have echoed loudly in antiquity. In the short term, it provided the Greeks with an example of how powerful they could be when they united against foreign invaders. A month later, down but by no means out, the Greeks destroyed large portions of the Persian navy at the Battle of Salamis. This sent Xerxes scurrying back to Asia with his tail between his legs. A year after Thermopylae, at the Battle of Plataea, the Greeks virtually destroyed the Persian army and ended Xerxes' dreams of any further control of the region. Furthermore, in terms of its inspirational and morale-boosting power, Thermopylae is second to none. I defy anyone not to be at least impressed by what Leonidas and his band of brothers achieved. The idea of a small force facing and holding their own against a much larger foe is one which countless warriors through the ages have clung on to when all other hope was lost. The examples of self-sacrifice and the Spartans' calm acceptance of their fate as something that simply was to be speaks of a temperament which is rarely found in our world. They saw and understood themselves to be a very small part of something much larger and more significant. What humility! We'll finish off with the best line of the battle, that is, a quip from Dionysus, a Spartan general, who came up with the best response from the entire battle, when, upon being warned by the Persians that their archers were so numerous that their arrows would block out the sun, he answered, well, then we shall have some shade in which to fight. You've got to admire that. Okay, that's it for this week. See you next time. 